Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from the battlefront as Ukraine strikes Russian airbases, Vladimir Putin visits Xi Jinping in China, and Francis Dernley interviews foreign policy expert and historian James Carafano. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 17th of October, one year and 235 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor for Defence, Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and, recently returned from his reporting trip to Ukraine, Foreign Correspondent Colin Freeman. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So, let's start with these reported strikes. Ukraine's military said today that their forces had launched successful overnight strikes on Russian airfields, Russian-held airfields and equipment near the cities of Luhansk and Berdyansk on territory that's currently controlled, as I say, by Russian forces. So on Telegram, they said this morning that the armed forces of Ukraine made well-aimed strikes on enemy airfields and helicopters near the temporarily occupied Luhansk and Berdyansk. So Berdyansk, so we're now down on the Sea of Azov, right at the, the northern point. So if you think about the, the Sea of Azov, right in the middle at the top, that's Berdyansk. Halfway-ish between Mariupol and Militopol. And as well as aircraft, we think there were reports that a munitions depot, an air defence system and the runways there were also hit. Unconfirmed reports say about nine Russian helicopters were damaged or destroyed at Berdyansk. Not had any news from Luhansk, but at Berdyansk. And we know that a mixed fleet there, a modern KA-52 Alligator and slightly older Mi-24 Hind attack helicopters, plus the Ma-8 HIPS troop transporters, MI-8, HIP, the latest version, MI-17, still designated by NATO as HIP. Troop transporters, as I say, although they do carry weapons as well. We don't know the total number of damage or destroyed and don't know what the mix was there. Now, Vladimir Rolgov, the the Russian-installed official in Zaporizhia, he said the strikes were not successful. He said, according to preliminary information, our air defences system successfully intercepted enemy rockets. But he then said... Information about victims and possible damage is being clarified. I mean, if the images that I can see on social media, which I've not been able to verify, but there are images on social media purporting to be the airfield, or certainly at Berdyansk, then it does look like something got through there. And there's satellite imagery as well that compares Berdyansk today with some weeks ago. So it looks like something's got through. Now, as I say, I don't know. I think on the on Berdyansk, certainly, they, the aircraft there were not in hardened aircraft shelters, big sort of concrete domes, if you like. They relied on, the Russians relied on space, so spacing out the aircraft. So a very difficult target to hit because you don't, unless you're going to use, I don't know, tactical nuclear weapon or something, which is clearly out of the question, it's very difficult to destroy a large number of bits and pieces that are held on airfields. Airfields are by their nature, quite big. So they relied on space for protection there, but it looks as if either one very big thing or a number of smaller things has got through. There's not a lot of redundancy on helicopters. You don't need to hit them directly if you just need to get near them. They don't take well to shrapnel, having holes 
put in them. They're, the fuel is highly flammable, obviously, like any other jet fuel. And as I say, because it needs to be aerodynamic, you can't have bits falling off it as you're flying through the air. So they don't take well to anything that's punctured a hole in it or in any way impacted the airframe at all. So as long as you can get something through, you don't have to be super duper accurate to impact all kinds of aircraft in, in particular. Helicopters. Helicopters don't want to fly, basically. A plane, a fixed-wing plane, will, will sit on the air. That's quite happy. So if it loses its engines, it will sort of glide for a certain while. It wants to fly. It wants to physics, wants to keep it in the air. Helicopters do not want to fly. Helicopters are basically a brick, and they're fighting against physics the whole time. The engine has to be big enough to put power to the gearbox up to the rotors, and you need to have another rotor to stop the contra-rotating, what is it, Newton's second or third law, keep forgetting the equal and opposite thingy. So helicopters don't want to fly, and, and therefore anything that damages them, it just makes them even harder to, uh, to get off the ground to conduct their mission. Anyway, more of that to come, I'm sure, as we get better information. Now, just separately, there's been a lot happening over the last few days. Let's go to the east. Information from ISW and other places put together. Let's have a quick run through of what we think happening. Think is happening in the east, and it's looking like Russia has deployed elements of at least two central military district brigades to reinforce the operations by the so-called Donetsk People Republic forces around the Avdivka front. So we think three Russian brigades. So the Donetsk or the DNR's 114th Motor Rifle Brigade, and then the 15th and 21st Motor Rifle Brigades from the Central Military District, both from the 2nd Combined Arms Army, regular Russian forces. We think they've been involved in the recent attacks uh, around Adivka, alongside various other scattered sort of DNR elements. Russia's also thought to be holding a brigade in tactical reserve. Now, we think those Central Military District elements from the 2nd Combined Arms Army. They've been active along the Savatove Kramina line until recently, and the newly formed 25th Combined Arms Army that Russia created during this war, or the, the, since the full-scale invasion, we think the newly formed 25th likely relieved them up in the up in that northern area. So that, that bit, Svatove Kramina, that's in the north of the line that, that Russia currently holds in Ukraine. Those lines haven't moved much in months. The second combined arms army elements have primarily conducted defensive operations up there for the last few months and likely had more time to rest and reconstitute before deploying south to a more challenging sector around Avdivka. Um, but Russian forces continued offensive operations around Avdivka yesterday, making small gains, albeit at a, at a relatively slower pace than in the initial attacks. Geolocated footage from yesterday shows Russian forces have marginally advanced east of the E-50 road, the main road there, about 3k south of Avdika. Ukraine's general staff said they'd pushed back 22 Russian attacks in the last 24 hours around Avdivka, down from 30 that they reported on Sunday. And Russian sources noted that their forces have increased the intensity of air and artillery strikes. That's likely to compensate for the slow progress on the ground as the advance, Russian advance, hits the heavy Ukrainian fortifications in the area. Now, add to that, today's UK MOD defence intelligence brief has said that Russia has highly likely started a coordinated offensive across multiple axes in the east. For the push on Avdivka, which they do need, don't forget, Russia needs that to occupy the whole of Donetsk Oblast, but Russia is using multiple armoured battalions, which chimes with what uh, ISW is saying, and UK Defence Intelligence say it's the most significant Russian offensive action since January earlier this year, um, but that they've suffered such heavy equipment and personnel losses that they've been stymied in the advance, basically. We've seen images uh, of tanks and other armoured vehicles in, in operating straight lines. That's not not always a bad thing, depending on the situation, but it is very poor drills to follow almost the exact path around vehicles in front of you that have been disabled or destroyed by mines. We, you kind of call it press-on-itis, i.e. just keep going and hope that you'll be okay. And as I said before, if the word hope enters your plan anyway, you haven't planned enough. But UK Defence Intelligence says that successfully clearing Avdivka looks increasingly unlikely in the short term and says that the high casualty rate and the very slow progress has been responsible for a change in Russian messaging. So Russia is no longer referring to offensive action, but talks about active defence, which I think is a meaningless term, as all defence should be active. But we've talked before about 
um, Mad Rod, the, the moniker for remembering the principles of defence here in Britain. Mutual support, all-round defence, depth, reserves, offensive spirit and deception. So the offensive spirit bit has always been in there. So, you know, the term active defence is utterly meaningless. However, as if on cue, up pops Russian Defence Minister Sergei Shoyu yesterday, and he said that Russian forces had improved their tactical positions in unspecified areas and that the Russian active defence along the front, including near Avdivka, is prohibiting Ukrainian advances. So I think we do well to note the language there, not only the active defence bit, but the fact that you've got the defence minister, 20 months after starting this lightning three-day attack, the defence minister lauding the efforts of his forces by saying they are prohibiting Ukrainian advances, I think neatly sums up the state of the army and the state of their tactical ability at the moment. Uh, And I'll take a little pause there, David. Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's good to have you back. Francis Sternley, there's been a lot going on in international politics. Where would you like to start in your roundup? Thanks, David. The tectonic plates of geopolitics are moving in real time this week. Sometimes history moves at a glacial pace, other times in an eruption. And we're living through the latter at the moment. Much attention, understandably, is on the Middle East, where seemingly every key global actor is in some way involved in discussions there. But I'm going to begin with President Putin's visit to China today, which in any other context would be front page news and our, for our purposes certainly is. This is Putin's first visit to a major global power since the Ukraine invasion, a signal that the frost that once encased him is truly thawing now. China is welcoming representatives from 130 countries for a forum of Xi's Langmark project, namely the Belt and Road Initiative that Beijing is using to extend its global influence and, of course, not without controversy. Putin is at the top of the invitation list, apparently looking to bolster Russia's relationship at a summit that will inevitably be overshadowed by the Israel-Hamas war. We understand that Putin and Xi may discuss that conflict during their meeting in Beijing today, following Putin talking to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday and saying that Moscow wanted to help prevent a humanitarian disaster in Gaza. Wading into this crisis with a flurry of other calls to key regional players. His spokesman, our old friend Dmitry Peskov, has today reiterated Putin's view that the explosion of violence in the Middle East is a failure of US policy, describing the tragedy unfolding as a result of countries' dismissive attitude to the problem. No shocks there about the line that they're putting out. But in our focus on Russia here, I don't wish to give the misguided impression that they are somehow the masterhinds behind the events in the Middle East. They remain a bit part player at present. But as we discussed last week, there are numerous advantages for them of a destabilised region, distracting from the war in Ukraine. And I think most crucially, giving Putin an opportunity to flex his muscles again on the world stage, making phone calls and overtures to world leaders who may now receive him and be more willing to engage with Russia. I'll talk later about the deal brokered via Qatar that will apparently see the return of four Ukrainian children taken by the Russians to their families, which I think should be interpreted in the context of a wider strategy by Moscow to restore its reputation and come across as a country that cares about humanitarian catastrophes. In this diplomatic dance, Zelensky continues to argue that the war in Ukraine should be seen as part of a broader front of the West against unchecked violence and terrorism. He is apparently keen to make a solidarity visit to Israel as part of that drive, but has apparently been turned down by Israel, who said the timing isn't right. As discussed before, Netanyahu has a good working relationship with Putin, some would say even closer than that, and given his priorities, may feel he cannot afford to burn bridges when Russia remains an important broker with the Syrians and other powers in the Middle East. Another important fact to mention in all this is that it's being widely reported that North Korea sent more than a thousand containers of military equipment and munitions to Russia in recent days. Images released by the White House were said to show the containers loaded onto a Russian flagged ship where they're being moved via train to southwestern Russia. The US said the containers were shipped between North Korea and a seaport near Vladivostok. It unveiled that new intelligence as North Korea threatened again to use 
nuclear weapons to defend itself after the arrival of the USS Ronald Reagan Aircraft Canada and its battle group in the southern South Korean port of Busan. Now, that's what's going on in those regions. But casting our eyes back to Europe, James spoke in detail yesterday about the implications of the Polish election. So I won't go over old ground, but this is also significant. Many in Brussels will see it as a victory against populism, bringing Wilsaw back into line after their deviations on many matters, foreign and domestic in recent years. The outstanding question in the Ukraine context is whether it will lead to deviations on their defence policy. That may be nuanced. Poland may continue to invest in its armed forces, for instance, but it may be more philosophically inclined now to work within the defence networks of the EU, returning to the back rooms, as it were, which some will see as a negative, as it will mean it will be less adaptive, less speedy and less willing to go its own way on this subject of rearmament. But it's too early to say and we'll be monitoring that closely. Now, lastly, I spoke about Russian opposition a bit last week and the reports that Marina Svenyakova, the TV presenter who held up signs denouncing Putin's invasion last year on Russian state television, may have been poisoned in France, where she now lives after leaving Russia. Indeed, that was what the Paris prosecutor's office suggested, hence why we reported it. However, she herself has since published a statement saying, and I quote, I did not communicate with journalists and hope that this information would be kept secret. The only thing I can say is that there was no white powder, as reported by an unknown source, and subsequently uh, many publications on a door handle. I felt bad on the street. A doctor was called. The deterioration in my condition was so sudden that the police began an investigation. This isn't surprising since Putin's Russia has long been associated with poisoning of politicians and journalists. I'm much better now. Most of the test results are already ready. No toxic substances were found in the blood. We are talking about poisoning, but I am not. Thanks to everyone who's worried about me. So I thought it was important that we clarified that, given that we reported on it last week, coming straight from the source. But as I say, it did come from the Paris prosecutor's office. But we're more than willing to put up our hands when um, these stories take a different turn. Nonetheless, though, it's important to emphasise that the crackdown in Russia more broadly that we spoke about remains irrefutable. Uh, Jailed Russian politician leader Alexei Navalny has condemned the arrest of three of his lawyers, which I spoke about. And he's been in the dock today talking about this. He said these are outrageous and illegal acts. The lawyers were prosecuted for their professional activity. Nobody is now allowed to see me. I am completely isolated from information. As I say, his lawyers were a vital means of communicating with the outside world. And so it seems yet another attempt to silence his voice yet further within the Russian context. So that's where we are in a momentous week for politics and diplomacy, David, one that continues to change day by day and which I think in the coming hours we will see evolve yet further, particularly in the Middle Eastern context, which continues to shape all of the narratives in which we're discussing at length today and around on wider ones too. Be under no illusions, what happens there will have huge ramifications for the international order over the coming weeks, months, possibly even years. And so uh, we'll have to be monitoring that very closely as long alongside the events that are taking place in Ukraine, because it is all interconnected. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Colin Freeman, can I come to you? Colin, welcome back to the UK. Thank you for all of your uh, reporting from out in Ukraine. There's just a couple of stories I think we should pick up uh, that you wrote towards the end of your time out there. Would you start by just telling us about some of your conversations with the Ukrainian soldiers about the Leopard tank? Colin Freeman. Yes, so last week uh, we were up near Kupiansk in northeastern Ukraine, and we were able to visit a unit that were using the new Leopard tanks. These are the the German tanks that have been supplied by Germany and another number of other European nations as I think essentially that the main battlefield tank for the counteroffensive that they're not actually brand new most of them date back to the 1990s and mid 90s models but we were keen to find out what the Ukrainians actually who were using them 
actually thought of them. So off we went. We saw a unit who were some way back from the front lines and we asked them a few questions. I should stress here that when you're asking them about the ups and downs of their different tanks, it is hard not to end up sounding like a reviewer for Top Gear or something like that. And I'm aware also that I'm in the presence of our own Jeremy Clarkson, Dominic Nichols, who is clearly an expert on tanks. But here are my own questions to these guys, admittedly, without much technical expertise, what responses they got. The, the first thing was that they said they liked the tank a lot. It was relatively easy to use, a bit more complicated than their old Soviet ones. It had a better gun. And in particular, it was much safer if you had artillery or drones or anything else coming in. It wouldn't stop you getting hit but you stood a better chance of surviving. They also said, somewhat to my surprise, that one of the other advantages was it was much quieter, the engine. And I must admit, when they turned it on from a distance, I didn't actually really notice that they turned it on. I thought it was a nearby van or something like that. And it it doesn't make much more noise than... Oh, I suppose a, a Ford Luton lorry or something like that. It's relatively quiet, which given that it's a sort of 60 ton um, uh, tank is it, quite impressive. And they said this had actually been useful because on one of their recent operations, an, an ambush that they'd carried out, they'd taken the tank up towards the Russian front lines. And they'd actually, they said they'd actually got within about 200 meters of the Russian front line before the Russians noticed that they were there in this tank, which they put down to the fact that the engine really is quite quiet. And compared to an old Soviet tank, especially, where apparently you would hear it from two or three kilometers around. And from what they said, by the time they got to the Russians, within 200 meters of them, the Russians figured they were there. It was already too late because they then fired their weapon at the Russians and then the infantry did the rest. So it was a success from their point of view. But in that sense, it seems the Leopard is going down reasonably well. It hasn't had, you know, 100% good headlines in Ukraine so far. A number of them were seen getting bogged down in the landmines, uh, the Russian minefields at the beginning of the counteroffensive back in June. So it's not invincible. But I think that the key take home as far as these troops were concerned was really that it was if they did get hit, they would stay safe uh, or relatively unscathed within the side. Colin, one thing I picked up from your reporting there was something I hadn't really appreciated was that there's a huge mix of uh, tanks being used by the Ukrainian units. I mean, you write that uh, combat is the the art of making do and many Ukrainian units continue to fight in tanks dating back to the Brezhnev era or before. Could you just talk a little bit about that? What did they say about some of the the old Soviet tanks they were using? And then maybe once you've answered that, uh, we can bring Dom Nichols in just for any thoughts you have on the Leopard. Dom, I don't know if you've ever driven a Leopard before, but uh, Colin Freeman first. Some of them are still using T-64s and T-72s. As I understand it, the number after the T relates to the year in which that tank was first built or first came online. A lot, of, So that means some of these tanks are dating back to the 1960s, or certainly their original design is. In, in that time, they've had a lot of modifications, but certainly when you climb into them, it's like climbing back in time to the days of, I don't know, a Ford Cortina or something like that. You're looking at this old, very analog style pre-digital era dashboard and and controls and so on so yes it it does feel like a fairly old piece of kit that does not however mean that they are not battle effective i think like like many vehicles that you send into a battle you don't want anything too fancy or too delicate anyway and um, one or two of the commanders i said to them would you prefer to have uh, a modern le- leopard tank or a challenger and they said no not particularly i mean it would be nice if we got them but we are quite happy uh, or perfectly content as it is using the tanks where uh, we've been trained on or they, they also point out that, that most of the russian army is using the tanks from the same date same era as they are um and they said, look, the important thing is not what the piece of kit, but how you use it, how competent you are in it, and so on and so forth. And I think among some, 
especially tank commanders who've been in, in tanks in Ukraine for maybe 10 years or more, there is perhaps a preference for what they know when you're going into battle rather than perhaps taking in a brand new or, or relatively new leopard tank and, and perhaps having to learn on the job as to where, where it maybe isn't, doesn't perform quite as well as, um, as, as where you might hope. So for, for, for various reasons, I think that those who are using the old kit are, are, are not too up in arms about it. That's really fascinating. Thank you, Colin. Dom, do you want to come in on any of that? Yeah, I'll just add that the, when I read Colin's report, the thing that stuck out to me, as he's men- mentioned there, was about the noise thingy. I don't know if I could say they were as quiet as a van, but the thing about a tank, they're so big and heavy, 60-odd tons, you need a big old engine to shift that. So, of course, you're going to make, you're going to make a load of noise. But just like a car, a motorbike, whatever, it's, there are ways, different ways of driving it, different ways of operating it to, to reduce that noise signature. And the crew should also be looking at the ground, and, and that is how you use ground and where that noise goes. And if you're using the low ground and if you're being sensible about where you're going, you can further mask the noise from the engine. Weather plays a big part here. If the wind is blowing away yeah, from the enemy to you, then that helps mask your engine noise as well. And then the big thing is that if you're in another armoured vehicle... Uh, or a helicopter or anything else, then it is very difficult to hear um, at, beyond your own thing, your own vehicle, because you've probably got a headset on, you've got radios blaring in each ear, you've got the, the, the noise of your own um, tank anyway or, or whatever in, you've got your operator asking if you want one sugar or two and all that kind of stuff all at the same time. And, I'm, you know, Hamish will tell you, I'm not joking, they, the worst possible moment, they'll say, do you want tea with a bite, sir? Bite being a little bit of whiskey or, or something. Anyway, stories of another day. But the point is that, that it's very difficult to hear on the battlefield anyway, which is why dismounted infantry with anti-tank guided weapons can be so deadly. They obviously don't have anything like the protection of an armoured vehicle around them all the time. But yes, they can listen out for it. But there are things that you can do, both when the, the designers of these things, but also the crew themselves when they're fighting them to really mask your signature. And it all comes down to just competence with the kit and, and, and experience and knowing how to use the vehicle how to use ground when's the best time to to go and you know, mount an attack that kind of thing uh, and what you do with it when you're when you're in contact so this that's the, the difference as we said before between having an experienced crew and people who are just chucked on a tank and say right drive it that way and fire the gun it can make a huge difference a good crew are just immeasurably immeasurably better than a much less experienced crew even if that other crew is on you know, arguably a better tank so it's a a mute point for discussion but you know a, a much better crew on an older tank arguably better than um, than an inexperienced crew on one of the most modern western things but no i thought the noise signature was interesting but there's a lot you can do about it thanks very much don colin can we just talk about one more story from ukraine that's uh, slightly less encouraging um you were told by some of the soldiers about a lack of ammunition um particularly for artillery guns can you tell us about this Yes, we went to see a group of soldiers who had been given British-made L-119s. These are howitzers, basically big artillery guns, um, that were donated by the UK to Ukraine back in the, I think it was the summer of this year, about 36 of them. And there were Ukrainian troops filmed practicing with them, training with them on Salisbury Plain and so on. So, So something of a sort of showpiece donation, you could say. But unfortunately... Much as these guns are appreciated, apparently they're very user-friendly, nice and easy to operate, accurate, etc., etc., nice piece of kit, but they've run out of shells for them, or very nearly. The unit we spoke to said that they were restricted to firing the shells for these particular L-119s. They said they had five shells per week that they could use for their own individual gun, which clearly, they said, is just not enough because it means you're having to weigh up very carefully during you know a combat situation whether you should bother firing a shell or not and as a result they were reverting sometimes back to their old soviet guns which i think fire a different caliber of ammunition and therefore they had far more of that including one ancient old field piece that they dragged out which dated right back to i think it was a d44 which they said was a a weapon first used in stalin's time after world war ii the wider context to this is that there is a general shortage of shells it's not specific to the british made l119 it's a general shortage of artillery shells across europe at the moment certainly of 105 millimeter shells 
And we saw just, I think, about 10 days ago, the head of NATO's military committee, Dutch Admiral Bob Bauer, saying that production is just simply not keeping up with internationally among Ukraine's Western partners. Production is not keeping up with the rate at which Ukraine is using them. And his quote was that we are close to the bottom of the barrel. Now, there are efforts being made now to massively increase production across Europe and in America too, and source shells from other countries, third countries. But it, it, that, that the fact that they are actually short, falling short on the front line clearly illustrates, I think, that, that, that there is a shortage that's not going to be uh, uh, rectified any time soon. And of course, it's a, as, as these soldiers pointed out, it's a, a great shame if you've got these nice, fancy new um, uh, British-supplied guns, which are better, they said, than the Soviet ones, but they can't really use them effectively. You spent weeks over in Ukraine on your last reporting assignment there, talking to all sorts of different people and travelling across the country. When you look back on your last visit, uh, do you come to any sort of conclusions, When you any particular memories that stand out for you? What, how, how would you sum up your experience over there? Well, well, we'll be writing a, a sort of a, hopefully a longer read at some point about really trying to take stock a bit of the the progress of the counteroffensive over the last four months. It has been held thus far, that piece, because while I was out there, we had the trouble breaking out in Israel. And I must admit, for the first time since I've been going to Ukraine since in early February of 2022, this was the first time in 18, 20 months that Ukraine no longer felt like the number one international News priority, I suppose, for a period. But hopefully, yeah, stock-taking counter-offensive peace will appear at some point. The impression I got really was that while we do discuss a lot about how little territory, the relatively little territory the counter-offensive has taken, we're talking maybe sort of 250 square miles or something, which is not as much as people were hoping you you do realize just how hard they have to fight just for little tiny villages of 500 people i interviewed some troops who had spent two months for example taking a village of not more than 500 where they were literally having to fight house to house uh, every day and and so yeah you just realize just how how, how slow and bloody that the progress is but people do still seem to think that at some point and who knows when that might be a breakthrough will happen and the sort of floodgates will open, as it were. I think it's rather like predicting, as we all were some time ago, that would, would um, Vladimir Putin ever have a coup attempt against him? Everybody thought it might happen, and indeed it did, with Mr. Prigozhin back in June. But n- nobody could predict when or exactly how, and I think that probably applies to the counteroffensive to some extent as well. Well, thank you very much, Colin. We're very happy, obviously, you're back with us at Safe and Sound. Thank you so much for all of your reporting out there. Thank you for joining us. Um, let's now move, I think, unless there are any more updates to our final thoughts. Uh, Dom or Francis, would you like to go first? I'm happy to go first, David. I alluded to this story earlier, namely that four Ukrainian children taken to Russia following the invasion of Ukraine are to be returned to their families as part of a deal brokered by Qatar after months of secret talks. Qatari officials have said Ukraine approached them and asked them to mediate with Russia over the issue. Now, Qatar, tiny oil-rich emirate, it's acted as a broker in several international disputes recently, including the US-Iran prisoner swap. Their strategy is seemingly to allow everyone to have representatives in their country, both as a protective measure, but also so that they can act as key diplomatic brokers in these kind of contexts. It is where the leader of Hamas is currently residing There have been photos released of the exchange of these children who range from a boy aged two to a 17-year-old girl. They will apparently travel home to Ukraine via third countries, including Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Poland and Qatar. Some are calling this a breakthrough in a saga that's led to Putin being indicted for war crimes by the ICC, including the Qataris, who call it a first step. That's one way of seeing this. Another would be that this is a fairly empty gesture by Moscow, frankly, in order to try and show that they care about the children that they've kidnapped and sought to indoctrinate. These are, after all, only four children, and they're believed to have taken over 20,000. And it's still going on, with deportations ongoing. 300 children were sent from Zaporizhia last week alone. As we've reported now for months, a few 
Ukrainian parents have managed to reclaim their children through terrifying visits into Russia. But they are the outliers. Russian authorities have made it clear that orphans and those in children's homes for the disabled will not be returned. They are voiceless, trapped in Russian institutes where they are medicated and chained to beds for days on end. Then there are those unclaimed children being taught to hate their own country in schools, instilling them with the most brutish Putinite propaganda. For many, this is the reality of giving Russia Ukrainian territory, handing over terrified children who know no one and will never be found. So it's important to see this gesture as a grain of sand in the desert of war crimes Putin has created in this war and not to give in to the propaganda narratives which Russia is spreading today about how much they care about humanitarian causes. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols. Thanks, David. I'm uh, continuing to look at the whatever happened last night, Luhansk and Berdyansk airfields. Yeah, so what hit it? I think there's enough evidence to say that something got through. We still don't know the numbers of aircraft that potentially hit and destroyed or, or what have you. But something got through there. There's a, a increasing speculation that it was ATACMS, the US Army Tactical Missile System, the long-range precision weapon that Ukraine's been asking for months. There is some evidence emerging, also reports emerging, that the submunitions that have been documented there would suggest it had come from ATACMS. But anyway... If it is the first use of US-supplied ATACMs, I think that is very significant. And I think just as when HIMARS was introduced, the first time the really long-range precision artillery was uh, employed by Ukraine, we saw Russia have to just have to move everything back and move the, the logistic nodes, the ammo points, the fuel dumps, the command centers. Everything just had to move back a bound, if you like, and depending on the tactical significance at the time or tactical situation at the time that bound could be tens of kilometers for example so if everything has to move back a bit because they're now all in range of these new weapons what is that going to do for the russian effort to hang on to this this increasingly vulnerable land corridor down there along the north of the sea of azov and, and it also puts puts the question back to the forefront about well why is it taking so long for these weapons to get out there all this talk about it's provocative and you're not going to use them inside russia and all that kind of jazz i mean it's yet again as we went around the boy with artillery and tanks and high mars and all the rest of it uh, once again this idea of why can't you send the weapons earlier and i think now if this is the first use of attackums i think the pressure is going to go right on germany to supply the taurus cruise missile air launch cruise missiles and so a number of things happening here we don't yet know we haven't got proper verification of what was hit at those airfields let alone what did it but i think it's just going to put more pressure on the side of the argument that says we need to gift everything you can to ukraine especially if the, if there's all this this trouble brewing on the eastern end of the of the Mediterranean, and it could easily conflate into a regional just disaster there. So something has to be done about about just taking the pace off the world at the moment. And if that is gifting everything to Ukraine to try to bring forward some kind of victory there, then well, I'm all for that. But let's see if, if Germany make a statement about Taurus as a start. Thank you, Dom, Francis and Colin. A few weeks ago, Francis sat down with Professor James Carafano, a leading foreign policy expert and historian in Washington. A graduate of the US Military Academy at West Point, he served for 25 years in the US Army, retiring as Lieutenant Colonel, having served in Europe, Korea and the United States. In a wide-ranging conversation, he puts forward his perspective on where the war is headed and the historical parallels that can be drawn with past conflicts. Francis starts by asking him, about his reflections on the leadership of President Zelensky following an extended meeting with him. Here's their conversation. So this was last year. So by then we were well in six months and the front had stabilized. I, I think it's probably one of the first groups of Americans that weren't necessarily government people or something. And uh, actually we spent a lot of time in Poland before we went. And so it was very helpful to kind of get a Polish perspective and before actually going 
to Ukraine. And it was particularly, I think, helpful because it tends to get a bit blobby here when we talk about things. And so, for example, people talk about corruption. And it's helpful to remind people, for example, that a lot of the corruption in Ukraine is a legacy of the Soviet Union. And most of the corrupt people really were oligarchs who were really tied to the Russians. And this is Ukraine trying to move beyond that. And it was, I think, also very helpful to say, well, you know, primarily what the United States brings to the table is is military aid. And it's very, very difficult to argue that that aid isn't effectively used by the Ukrainians. And it was very interesting to kind of see that process go firsthand of stuff going into J-Town and moving into Ukraine that you could talk to firsthand for that. So it was really, I thought, quite helpful. And what did you make of President Zelensky? So he is a very serious man and he is very well informed. And he took, I thought, both criticism and constructive ideas very, very well. And I really felt that our our time with him wasn't just, okay, be nice to the Americans and then send them on their way. I, I think he's a genuine leader. I really do. And I think he's trying to do the best thing for his country. We'll come to history later, your historian by training as well. Did you feel the sense meeting him that this was somebody with the hand of history on his shoulder? Yeah. You know, and it's funny because how do you know these things? It's easy in retrospect. You know, you look in the history books and see these things in the pages. And when you meet people up front and personal, I've met so many leaders and in so many places. And at the end of the day, it's just, they're just people, just like everybody else. And this history that kind of makes them larger than like everything else. But it's just kind of the person in front of you. And honestly, what you look for in a strategic leader is character and competence and the ability to think critically. I certainly did find him a leader of character, particularly a sense of his dedication as a commander-in-chief and his myopic energy fighting for the Ukrainian people. He was certainly competent. I mean, it was impressive to hear the facts at his disposal and his command of them and his knowledge. And certainly he is a a critical, tough-minded thinker. There's a wonderful book called Supreme Command by Elliot Cohen, American historian, number of case studies through histories of political military leaders. And his point is, is that it's not just that I do the political stuff and then you go off and fight the war. And it's not that I do the war stuff and I don't care about politics. That real civil military command is the ability of political leaders to focus on their task, but to understand the military context and military leaders to understand their mission, but to understand that they have to operate with a political context. Mm-hmm. And pointing Lincoln, for example, Lincoln and Grant is two great examples of that. I honestly found Zelensky in that mode. Here was a guy who really understood him as well as president, but it was also clear that he understood the military operations and what the generals were facing and how they had to do. So yeah, I actually came away with a fair degree of confidence. To preface this, the last time I was in Ukraine was in 2017, before the war. And the occupation was considered an act of terrorism. So the military wasn't in charge. The home office was in charge. And they were briefing me on their command structure. And it was absolutely Byzantine. I mean, I came away with a thing like, if these guys have to fight a war, they're in really deep trouble. So I will say something dramatic happened between 2017 and the outbreak of the war. They made a lot of progress in, in their command and control and, and other aspects as well. And and here I do kind of credit the previous administration, which I think is something we don't talk about. We always kind of say, well, Republicans are skeptical about Ukraine. And, but the reality is, is under the previous president, there was an initial cachet of arms, which was absolutely vital in terms of that. And there was this kind of openness and training and integration and planning and everything else, which I think without that, if that had not happened and, and led the transformation in the military, the, they wouldn't have withstood the whole thing. And I, the other thing that's really obvious is we can have a water under the bridge argument here. We can have a big debate about how much commitment are we going to give to the Ukraine going forward, the US, everything else. But the reality is, without American military aid, there wouldn't be a Ukraine today. There just wouldn't be. doesn't matter how tough the Ukrainians had fought. There's a Ukraine today because of US military aid. In history's eye, I think the issue is settled. There, there will be a free and independent Ukraine. It's because of US military aid. Lots of other things matter a lot. Repairing contribution the fighting spirit and the commitment of the Ukrainians. But so when we debate about what will America do, to me, it's like, you know what? America did the stuff that had to be done, what it needed to be done. And that's what created the, the, the opportunities we have today to go forward. 
But there's still a lot in play. I mean, if America were to suddenly withdraw the weapons, potentially that would have enormous strategic ramifications on the battlefield yeah. and losing occupied territory. I mean, what would the consequences of that be in the long term, do you think, if that were to happen? Well, I mean, I think the odds of that are really very small in the near term. First of all, there's an awful lot in the pipeline and there will be an awful lot in the pipeline for some time to come. So there is a switch that you flip and aid goes to zero. Even if there was a political environment that wanted to do that, the systems, the engine's already running. So I, I don't think it's a realistic argument at this point. What about the Europeans in terms of providing weaponry? How does What's the American perspective on the European role in this? Well, for somebody who has been to a lot of European places very frequently, and every place I go, every person I meet, I ask three questions. What's going on in Ukraine? What's going to happen in the Polish elections? And then what's going to happen in the European elections next year? These are my three kind of foundational questions that I ask everyone. It's very clear that Nobody wants Ukraine to fail. Nobody. You cannot name me a European country that says, oh yeah, let the Russians win. We don't care. Nobody wants the Russians to win. Now, lots of debates about how much aid and whatever, but the answer, I think there is an enormous amount of solidarity that nobody really expected, but based on self-interest that, that that's true. I think the other thing which is really remarkable and doesn't get nearly enough coverage is we've had spike of high energy prices. We have had inflation, mass into our refugee movements in Western Europe. Name me a government that's fallen because of any of this, despite, I mean, got some real political battles across Europe. Europeans have been pretty politically stable through what has been a really tumultuous and unpredictable time. And that's partly as a consequence of the war. Yes, is it despite the war or is it because of the war? Well, That's think, a, the, yeah. an interesting question. But well, clearly, if the Americans had bailed on day one, we wouldn't be where we are, right? I mean, uh, and the other interesting thing is, look, I mean, I think the honest answer is the reason why the Americans didn't bail on one is the Ukrainians fought and didn't give up. Uh, and the other was the Europeans jumped on board. If those two things hadn't happened, I'm not sure this administration, I'm not sure any administration would have stepped up to the plate. It's interesting. How does this war end in your view? Yeah, I think we already know that. I often say it's Russia's already lost the war, but only the Russians can decide when to end the war. I cannot envision a scenario where there is not a free and independent Ukraine. I cannot envision how the Russians could muster the combat power to actually go on the offensive and significantly threaten the future of Ukraine. I think where the line ends up on the ground will be determined by the fighting on the ground. Lots of people have lots of ideas about political and diplomatic things, but the line on the ground will be chosen by the fighting. If people are looking for a model, I think it looks a lot like Israel 67 or Korea 53. There'll be a line on the ground. There might be a formal armistice. There might not. There might be a framework. There might not. But there'll be a line on the ground. And whether pieces retained in the future is going to be based on the amount of conventional deterrence that Ukraine can present and the ability of the country to recover. We often talk about, you know, when will Russia sue for peace? I don't know. The reality is, is I think to be fair, every day the Russians fight, the Russians are weaker than the day before. They can have deals with North Korea and China and whatever and Iran and evade sanctions, but none of that's going to be sufficient to rebuild the level of combat power they would really need to be a serious threat to the future of Ukraine. Like I said, I think it's in the commonly recognized in the West interest that, to have a free and independent Ukraine. But I think the model will be the fighting will end. There'll be a line. There won't be a permanent peace. People keep talking about land for peace. That's not what's going on here. It's not going to be land for peace, right? Because there's no amount of land that the Russians would get that they'd ever be satisfied with. And even if Ukraine gained back every inch of Ukrainian territory, the Russians might attack again, right? So it's not. this is not a land for peace formula. This is a peace that's going to be based on conventional deterrence. So we all talk about Putin, but I actually think the real actor here is Zelensky. And I say that because Zelensky has to balance kind of three things and how he manages them is going to really determine how the future unfolds. One, of course, is prosecuting the war. I don't think there's a scenario where Zelensky could not go on the offensive. That after all the blood and sacrifice and everything else, the notion that 
they wouldn't fight to take back Ukrainian territory. I don't see how Ukrainians would have ever accepted that. So there was always going to be some kind of counteroffensive. How successful it is yet, I don't know. But a counteroffensive can't go on to the point that it actually compromises the future ability of Ukraine to defend itself. The second is politics. He can't put off an election forever. In the end, that will actually undermine political stability in the country. Obviously, because he's a politician, he's going to want to call elections when it puts his government in the strongest position possible to do that. And the third is he has to set conditions for negotiations. And it's not about setting conditions with the Russians. It's about getting alignment among all your key partners and allies in support for your negotiating position. And so he's got to manage those three things. And how he chooses to manage them will really determine how strong a hand Ukrainians have when they go to the table. I don't think that this is going to be a Yalta 2. My presumption was that if Russians went to the table, the first thing they want is this big expansive deal that would essentially give them everything in the peace treaty that they didn't get in the war. And their notion is, so people are so sick and tired of the war, they'll just give us what we want. I don't think that's going to happen. So this deal's probably going to be, if it is even a formal deal and not just kind of a cessation of hostility, it's going to be relatively limited. I know there are people that would like to bring Moldova into this. Now, don't really see how that really happens. You know, the interesting thing is in Transnistria today, if there was a referendum, the Russians would lose. There's more Ukrainians and Romanians and Moldovans in Transnistria today than there are Russians. So Russians have a very tenuous position. So you might make an argument for some kind of Transnistria deal, but I, I, I think it's going to be relatively limited. And the Ukrainian red lines will be this. They won't give back any territory that they have. They won't concede formally any territory to the Russians. They might agree to not take it back by force and say, we'll only do so the negotiations, but they won't concede actual ownership of territory. They won't concede on an open door to NATO in the EU. They might say, okay, we don't have to have it right now, but they won't say, we'll sign off on something that says we'll never apply for EU and NATO membership. I think that's the scope of the Ukrainian deal that'll be on the table. Just coming back on one thing you said in, in terms of the consequences of the land that has is currently under Russian control, and you said that even if that were all taken back, that Russia could just attack again. Of course, from the Ukrainian perspective, they would argue that what they would want is they would want to achieve military victory and then enter NATO or get security guarantees that would mean that Russia could never invade again. What would you reply well, to I mean, that? I, the, the only thing you would ever physically keep Russia from invading again is two things. One is geography. So in other words, if you held a geographical line that was unassailable and the other is conventional deterrence, mm. there's no geography that they can't like fight to the Euro mountains. It's not like we'll, we'll fight up to the Suez canal and that we, you know, so there is no physical barrier that the Ukrainians can get to. That's going to guarantee that the, the Russians won't come back. And conventional deterrence is the most important thing. That's achievable inside or outside of NATO. I think obviously once Ukraine is in NATO, it's off the table. But I think there's only going to be a consensus for Ukraine joining NATO when there's a strong belief that conflict won't resume. So it's a bit eggy and chickety here, right? It's We don't think that there's further war, therefore it's okay to get Ukraine in. And of course, it really doesn't matter. The Russians at the end of NATO really care whether Ukraine's in NATO or not, right? But once Ukraine's in NATO, I think it's game over. But the reality is, is for Ukraine to get in, it'll be game over. That makes sense, right? And Ukraine will enter under the same conditions that, say, West Germany did, right? If there's still territory occupied by Russians, the conditions for Ukraine entering NATO will be Ukraine's commitment that it will not seek to regain those territories by force. So I think the course of history is written, you know, and we can debate timing and everything else, but I think this is the path forward. You're asking a, a, quite a transformation, though, of the Ukrainian current position. Are you saying that that's largely rhetoric? Well, look, I mean, the U.S. position in World War II was unconditional surrender. That was our position before we could actually be guaranteed of unconditional surrender. As the war progressed, unconditional surrender became an absolutely achievable goal. 
and therefore we implemented it. There's good reasons for Ukrainians to have the positions that they have. Whether that will actually wind up being the final condition of the war, I cannot conceptualize how this ends in military victory. If every single ounce of Ukrainian territory was won back, the Russians could still attack again. And if every single inch of territory was won back, there still wouldn't be confidence in NATO to automatically grant Ukraine membership. And that's the thing. It's consensus, right? There can't be voices, advocacy for it. There has to be consensus. And this doesn't mean that Article 5 doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that countries won't fight for Article 5, right? But they're not going to sign up for something that's not a sure thing, right? NATO has never expanded in conflict. It's only expanded in an absence of conflict. And the purpose of NATO is to deter conflict. The purpose of NATO is to build a safe space, right? Nobody is going to commit to adding risk. They're going to bring in countries that are safe to bring in. That's going to be a NATO consensus. It's really a measure of political will. Well, NATO is a political military alliance. I mean, I think it would be great if Ukraine was in NATO. And I think in the end, Ukraine will add a great deal of conventional terms. But let's look at it from a, a military perspective. Inside or outside of NATO, we're going to support, I mean, we broadly the West, including the European, the Japanese, and South Koreans, everybody else. We're going to support building a Ukrainian conventional deterrent force. What does that mean? It only means not only is attacking Ukraine risky, but can you really threaten the Baltic states? Are you really going to drive into the Baltic states with an 800-mile NATO front to your north and a massive Ukrainian military to your south? I don't think so. So the Baltic states are kind of off the table. Look at Crimea. The Russians will have military access to the Black Sea if they retain Crimea. But the Ukrainians will be able to reach every target military target in Korea. That is not a safe base for the Ukrainians anymore. So in terms of a, a power projection platform, Crimea is really off the table. From the Russian perspective. From a Russian perspective, because the Ukrainians can range everything in the place, right? And not to mention, you know, it's always, I mean, we don't talk about this, but the reality is, is there's nothing in the Black Sea that the United States Navy can't kill from the Met. Black Sea was never a Russian lake. The American Navy could sink anything in the Black Sea if it really wanted to. So as terms of Crimea being a dependable power projection platform to threaten its neighbors, and what's going to happen, look, all the littoral powers in the Black Sea, they're going to build up their capability. And the Russians can't live with a war in the Black Sea. What good does it have to do access to the Black Sea if commercial traffic can't flow for the Russians in the Black Sea? So I think eventually we're going to wind up with a free and open Black Sea. So these are outcomes that are going to happen whether the Ukraine's in NATO or not. You paint a picture of how you think this war will end. That's a different question from a historian's perspective, how you think it should end. From that perspective, do you think it is advisable for there to be this career-style un well, nobody, unresolved? Nobody, nobody likes unfinished business, but the reality is, is there is many, if not more, wars in history that are unfinished business and there are finished business. And it's an amazing how many times people try to finish business once and for all the United States and Iraq and the Second Gulf War, and it actually makes things worse off the Sometimes the best outcome is an imperfect one. I certainly think that a Korea model works. Again, now I'm just being a crass realist, but in part because it is unfinished business, people will just be able to turn their back on Ukraine because they'll have to realize that it does very little good to win a war and lose the peace. So if Ukraine becomes a basket case open to Russian penetration, that's no good. Ukraine can't defend itself and the Russians just say, oh, let's just try next year, right? So the blessing, I'm sure the South Koreans didn't see it as a blessing, but the blessing of, of South Korea was because it was unfinished business and because America perceived we have an interest, we stayed there for 40 years. What that 40 years did was it created this incredible expanse of time where the South Koreans on their own had a transition of democracy and became an economic powerhouse. And that would not have been possible if there hadn't been an American umbrella there for 40 years. And we didn't do it because we wanted to. We did it because we had to. And the same thing is 67 created the belief that Israel will not survive unless Israel can defend itself against all its enemies and do so. And that's, that's why there's an Israeli state today. So if there was a perceived complete absence of a threat, if people thought this was Ukraine 2014 and we were just going back to, then I would worry about the future. But because I don't think the Russian threat will vanish. 
but it will be diminished. I, I do think people have an interest in investing and staying in Ukraine. You mentioned Lincoln earlier and struck me that the conundrum you're talking about with Zelensky having to have an election amid a war had some echoes with Lincoln, of course, in, in the presidential election in his time, which was obviously in a civil war context. But he likewise was in a position where he had a very serious struggle on his hands and yet knew there had to be an election. What do you think the outcome would be of an election in wartime in Ukraine? Well, you know, I think I think Zelensky would win, but the nature of political stability and political competition in Ukraine, I think, is changing. Ukraine really, for years, was kind of like a lot of unreformed former post-Soviet states, like you know Georgia, for example, where the competitions were largely personal and driven by the support of different oligarchs. Now, I think the power of the oligarchs has been significantly diminished as a result of the war. The competition for Zelensky is not in national political parties. It's in regional urban elites. So mayors of major city, regional. So I think what the criticism would be is we want more autonomy over our own areas, our own future. We don't want to be ruled by the central government. So that's his his main competition. But it's not as existential in the way that it may have been for the United States in the 1860s. No, no, I don't, no, I don't, I don't think so. So there's other interesting developments. So for example, for years we had this kind of intense bitterness between the Hungarians and the Ukrainians over the Hungarian ethnic population. That problem is almost gone because most of them have left. And because many of those areas... Eastern Ukrainians have flooded in there, so there's a small minority. So the percentage and the numbers of the population in that area that was traditionally ethnically Hungarian is now so small. So that almost is one of these things like that's an irritant that's kind of come off the tank. One of the big factors in this, in addition to how Zelensky pioneers, of course, is going to be the German-Polish relationship. I get a sense the German position is we'll get a new government and all our problems will be solved, right? And there'll be 180 from the old government. Well, if you do get a good government that's going to love you and everything else, are all the Polish-German challenges going to be solved? And the answer is, I think not, right? So how Germany and Poland work together in the future is going to really, I think, significantly impact how Ukraine fits into this whole puzzle. You know, in the end, this could be a huge win for Europe. I mean, you have an unprecedented opportunity to develop a north-south economic corridor, a whole new region of growth in Europe, introducing kind of dynamism in Europe that it really hasn't had for decades. I mean, it could be really healthy and very powerful. And then not discussed really is Eurasia's changing. You know, the traditional connectivity of Eurasia was really destroyed kind of starting the period of World War I. And then really kind of through the whole Soviet era. And even in the, the post-Soviet era, there was enormous amount of influence in the Russian and the post-Soviet space. But that's now so greatly diminished that between diminishing influence of the Russia in the Central Europe, in, in Northern Europe, in the Caucasus, in, in Central Asia, the fact that the Chinese brand's really kind of down, that the Iranians are still really kind of relatively contained. The whole post-Soviet space is really opening up. And so you have this opportunity to connect the kind of north-south corridor of Europe with Southern Europe and the Eastern Med, Black Sea, Central Asia. You know, we just saw this announcement from the G20, the Middle East connecting to India and Japan and South Korea. And you've got connectivity through the Med to the US for LNG and other stuff. You have the potential for cooperation on parts of Africa, North Africa, West Africa, East Africa. There's a possibility of the natural geographical connectivity of Eurasia coming back, as it was for you know, literally over a thousand years. That's going to bring growth, political stability, prosperity, and what's really at the center of that? Yeah, you know, Ukraine, Romania, the Black Sea, and a successful Ukraine is really a piece of that. And then, look, the future of Russia is really in the hands of Russians. And it's always a mistake to think, well, we need the Russians in order to live our lives. There's an opportunity. If you can reconnect the Eurasian space and you can end Russian threats to stability in Western Europe, we can live our lives regardless of what the Russians do. 
they want to become nice people and integrate with the rest of the world, fine. They want to be jerks and hang out with the North Koreans and the Chinese and the Losers Club, fine. You need a strategy for the future of Europe and the transatlantic community that doesn't depend on your enemies playing nice. If they want to play nice, this is something they can easily integrate to. To me, the, the value of this is this is not about traditional power politics. This is not about hard spheres of influence. It's the red smirk or smaller and the blue circle is better. We win, they lose. This is about really reinventing Eurasia, creating free and open spaces, not creating hard spheres of influence, but it's denying space for the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians to meddle greatly. Then I think, you know, I'm not Pollyannish, but, but that's a very, very stable future. And it, it doesn't require regime change and nation building and, and millions of divisions and building walls. It, what it really requires is connectivity and investment, common security frameworks. Things very, very doable. But a peaceful and prosperous Ukraine, a free and open Black Sea, that's a powerful enabler for that. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces, Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are me, David Knowles, and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.